Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Thanks for tuning back in. This is episode 201, and my guest today's name is Dave Deal. Dave is a returning guest, and he is the CEO of Prairie Capital, one of the nation's leading ESOP mergers and acquisition and business valuations firm. And Dave and his firm have eight locations across the country. They perform over 400 valuations annually, and they're major thought leaders in the ESOP community. Prairie also has a very active M&A advisory practice where they help companies sell to strategic and financial third-party buyers like private equity firms. Dave and his team helped turn my partner Pat's company into an ESOP and then three years later helped them sell the same company to a private equity firm, which resulted in Pat and the owner handing out over $20 million in checks to the employees. Today, Dave will share his thoughts on the current state of business valuations, how uncertainty in our economy, banking, and the American consumer impacts business valuations, and what he thinks the M&A market will look like over the next 6 to 12 months. I love this episode because COVID, nationwide quarantines, and supply chain issues that have all surfaced are amazing and easy to understand examples on how the unknowns about the future cash flow of a company directly impact valuations. Dave is the perfect guest to talk about this topic because his company's exposure to a huge variety of industries with their hundreds of annual valuations that they perform for ESOPs, which is a financial valuation based on the confidence of the future cash flows and how that compares to third-party sale valuations and strategic acquisitions. This is a great episode to help you shift your mindset to rebuild or refocus on strategies that will de-risk your future cash flows, grow value, and build a business that gives you options down the road. If you want to see how well your current strategies align with the long-term goals, take the two-minute multiple-choice assessment to get your intentional growth score and a one-page vision board. After 20 multiple-choice questions that take literally a couple minutes, you'll you'll shift your mindset away from annual income to focusing on long-term value creation so you have the freedom to choose to do what you want with the business long-term. You can text the word intentional to 66866 or you can go to arcona.io to get your intentional growth score. And I appreciate you tuning in and you can look forward to next week's episode where an entrepreneur shares his story of bootstrapping his company from the ground up to over a hundred million in revenue and how he sold to a private equity firm. And even though the guest got all of his cash up front, he shares with us a huge list of things he wishes he would have known differently. Hence the entire point of this podcast about being intentional with the growth. So that way you have an end in mind and you're engineering the outcome that you want. So without further ado, here's my episode with Dave Deal from Prayer Capital about the current state of business valuation. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Dave, how are you doing? Doing great, Ryan. How about yourself? Doing good. Uh, Round two of the podcast, and uh, I'm excited to have you on the show for various reasons. The last time you were on, there was no world pandemic and things were pretty straightforward, <laughs> so it seemed. 
And I've, uh, I was just telling, telling you that I, you know, I've witnessed a couple, couple presentations that you and Prairie has done over the last, I don't know, uh, four to six weeks that have been fantastic. And with your guys' heavy involvement in the ESOP community, doing annual valuations, and then us working on some clients together, I said, you know what? Let's get you back on the show and talk about valuations and what the heck is getting priced into them and can we even price them? <laughs> so maybe for the listeners that have not listened to that previous episode, Dave, just give a quick short background on your background, Prairie, what you guys do at Prairie, and then we can jump right into it. Sure. Uh, so Prairie Capital Advisors is a company that's an investment banking firm focused on helping privately held business owners execute on ownership transition strategies. So from merger and acquisition advisory and representing people who are selling to third parties, whether they be strategic or financial buyers, to uh, family transfers of stock within uh, a family, management buyouts, as well as ESOPs. So our goal is to advise privately held business owners on their alternatives, and then ultimately to help them to execute those strategies uh, to gain a liquidity event. And it's uh, what I think is super interesting about Prairie, and and you and I have talked about this. And I think my listeners have heard it, but I mean, you guys do not. You guys are a partially ESOP yourself. I think you got some fifty some employees. You do what? Is it three hundred valuations on ESAPs every year, Dave? And yeah, so about a little bit over three hundred a year on on the valuation side. And then you also sell to third parties, strategics, management, and or private equity. You guys have exposure all over the place, and I think you know even in today's world. You know, you can have some sort of insight if you do a couple of transactions a year for an investment banker, but like you guys are exposed all over the place from ESOPs doing current valuations. And so I just find it very interesting with your guys' model and how you guys do it. And then how you, you know, it's education focused first. And so I give that insight because that's going to be relevant in today's topic on like how things are getting valued and how this is impacting different, you know, exit options, the, the sediment that's out there. And so... You know, when you think about like maybe just kind of give an overall or may give you some insight on the practice, Dave, of the 300 valuations, because I think that's crazy important on understanding how ESAP's got to be valued and how they were getting valued at the end of last year and then this year. And then we can kind of talk about why that's changed and what the pandemic has done to it. Sure, absolutely. So, you know, for every ESAP that's done, if and this is the case where we're working on the buy side, so we'd be representing the trustee who's looking to purchase the securities. The company needs to be valued on an annual basis. And you're, you're right. I mean, this gives us some pretty unique insight into a whole host of companies and, and what's going on in different industries and different geographies currently. And, and most of those companies have 1231 year ends. So for those companies, we're going through activities right now where we're valuing those entities and we're, we've either just completed them or we're in the process of completing those valuations as of December year end. Now, for those valuations, there was really no pandemic. There was no idea that anything was going to have this level of impact. So those valuations were done with the mindset at the time, which was economy was good, everything was looking strong, and we're moving forward. The problem for some of these entities is because certain parties leave uh, the ESAP company and they need to be bought out, there's been a lot of companies that have had some pretty significant impairment in their performance subsequent to that. And there's some companies that have, you know, mid-year pricing or, or you know, mid-year end that we need to value now. So if you're a 331 year end or a 630 year end, very different dynamics that are going to be entering into 
uh, those valuations. But for those that are even just doing administration uh, that were, you know, calendar year end, you know, they're looking at things. And if their business has been significantly impaired, uh, we're doing a review of those entities to see exactly how much value is dropped and to work with them on consulting on ways to best handle uh, this significant decline in, in the market values and, and general activity. So, you know, we're seeing a whole lot, you know, of, of different things. I mean, some companies are performing rather well, but there's a whole host of companies that have seen reductions in force or furloughs and a significant drop in their business activity or supply chain disruption and whatnot. Uh, so, you know, there's certainly a different mindset now. I, I will say too, though, that one of the greatest difficulties right now is really picking a date. Because uh, Ryan, as you're seeing in the stock market right now, the volatility in pricing has been pretty significant. And you know, even just choosing one date uh, versus a, a date a week from then, depending on the situation, if you're just valuing a company or depending on when their year end is, can have a pretty significant impact on how you're viewing the market. So we're looking at a, at a little bit longer swath of of pricing when trying to come to a conclusion at that exact point in time. You know, drawing on a little bit more of the history, you know, you know, thirty day history on where the stock market has been, you know, so that we don't get pulled into multiples that are predicated on, you know, on a short term pricing of like one day or one week. Yeah, some sort of reality. <laughs> and so before we go down into the economy, what has like how you're pricing different scenarios and devaluations? What I think we should do, Dave, for the listeners, let's set a couple building blocks of foundation for valuations, and then we can get into how industries will impact the different things that are impacting those valuations and the recalibration. So like maybe we can start it off with just when you're valuing a company because you guys do ESOP valuations and you know valuations on an ongoing basis and for a lot of different reasons, the financial valuation. And then there's what we like to call the strategic valuation. So there's kind of two different ways to value a company. So maybe want to set some some ground, uh, some uh, ground rules and framework before we do dive into what is being impacted on that. Sure, uh, you know certainly from a financial buyer perspective, and this encompasses most of the private equity community. If they're looking at at a, a company for a platform investment or for an ESOP, who they aren't bringing any you know real synergies to the table. You know you'll see some pretty consistent pricing of these entities. There will be variations from an industry standpoint and certainly from a growth standpoint, but largely those companies are pricing transactions and valuations based on a combination of obviously the external environment and also what they can borrow uh, in order to make the purchase. So, you know, the, you know, the financing markets play a key role uh, in looking at this and, and coming to that conclusion. And they're looking at what the cash flow generating capability of that company is and then what kind of leverage they can use to, to, to purchase that or to value that entity. Now, strategics, on the other hand, oftentimes can actually have a lot of synergies that they're able to bring to the table. And it may be that they have some overlap in, in distribution you know, with space or with anything that relates to marketing or even just their ability to produce that product uh, with existing machinery whatnot. There's a whole host of things that they can do to generate additional cash flow in that entity. And, you know, so those entities often can, if they really want the, the deal, can price things a little bit more in a little bit more robust fashion because, you know, they're actually re receiving greater cash flow at the end of the day. 
Well, and I, and I think you, you hit on a couple of good points here, Dave, because when we talk about financial valuations, you, you talk about the ability to borrow. And then another way of putting that is right. Just it's based on the health of the cash flow and the sustainability going forward, right? Like it's based on the, the discounted cash flow. And what is our confidence that this machine, which is a business, can produce cash? And then therefore, you could just have some sort of debt service that you would place on that based on the health of the cash. Absolutely. And, and the, you know, the environment that you're in really can dictate some of the pricing. So if, if banks are in a position where they're willing to lend and willing to lend larger volumes of capital, that keeps your cost of capital down and gives you the ability to, to, to put in you know, more money into a deal. So when you know, banks are lending, you know, say the latest uh, quarter for, for, for Q1 uh, in 2020, we were seeing in most of the financial buyer deals that, that senior debt to EBITDA was at about 3.5. Now we've had times, and, and we may well be seeing a time here soon, when that reduces down to 2.5 times EBITDA. Well, if you're getting a turn less of leverage, so you know, one turn of EBITDA less of leverage, it really limits your ability to pay up. And so the, the freer the capital is on the banking side, the more robust the pricing is for people when they're, they're, they're selling their, their securities. So, and I think we can, let's, so here's what I'm just kind of obviously flying on, on this is, is what maybe we can dive into like the things that are impacting those uh, financial valuations, Dave, because I think the lending and the financial markets have to do with it. Like you were talking about pricing based on the stock market and then also industry risk, company risk, all that stuff. Let's unpack that first because then the strategics, they use that as a baseline, but then there's other reasons that they're going to layer on top for that transaction to generate their cash flow. So maybe let's unpack the, the financial, the market. So when you're saying that, like, what, so why would a bank not want to lend that? extra turn in EBITDA. And then what are other what are other major concerns that people are looking at is they're looking at the ability for this company or a company to borrow. Well, for some cases it's it's a question of you know where's the the risk and what what does the bank's own portfolio look like? Obviously we saw in the last recession, you know in in 2007-2009, uh, banks really started to to put themselves in a position where they were looking to improve the quality of their credits. And so they wanted to you know, lend less money into deals. They wanted to take more secure positions. They had enough headaches on their hands, and you know, therefore they they pulled back some of their own risk tolerance uh, from a, a banking standpoint. That they didn't, you know, they wanted to create greater a greater secure portfolio within you know their own bank. So we're seeing like, get, like getting out of commercial real estate or like you know, I mean, all the different real all the different things that they might have had exposure to that they shouldn't have, right? Will impact the overall portfolio of a, of a bank. Just same thing as any normal investor. Absolutely, but it you know it, it ebbs and tides, and and the the banks themselves they find themselves in that that cycle where it's a question of okay, well things are good, you know, there's opportunities out there, but everyone's chasing those opportunities, and therefore they need to get more aggressive in order to get the deal and to be able to book the loan. Uh, then there are times like now when things have gotten a little bit dicier and they're dealing with some of their own portfolio issues within their own companies and their own loans that they have. And, you know, they're, they're going to become a little bit more constrictive and, and they're not going to be as, as lending at, at quite the same multiples that they had even a few months ago. And we're already seeing that start to happen. In this environment, it's kind of interesting too, because some of this is happening just because they're, they're not able to utilize their internal resources, their people, uh, as, as much as they would normally. And, and that's 
partly because the the PPP, PPP so yeah. the Paycheck Protection Program, has really caused I mean, an, an incredible inflow of new loans uh, to these banks. And so a lot of the bankers have been pulled off of that. But it's also a, a result of a lot of the headaches that they're seeing, again, in their portfolio, which is causing them to to be a little bit more conservative in, in how they're looking at, at new opportunities, particularly considering that most of the companies themselves you know, don't have a whole lot of visibility into what their own performance is going to be. So it's, <laughs> it's hard for them to convey and, and you know, difficult for a bank to, to go risk on right now at a time when you know, the markets are, are in turmoil. Well, I think what's a crazy like thing that we need to separate here is like, so you do valuations annually for 300 plus ESOPs, which in order to eventually do an ESOP, your financial maturity and clarity has to be pretty rock solid. I mean, like you're doing trailing 12 months, you got forecasts, you got budgets, you got all those different things. And then you have the general private market, which is who knows, right? <laughs> I'm sure you and I both have stories. I literally have a bank that told me, Dave, about six months ago. He goes, yeah, our 2020 goal is to clean up our customers and we want to have clients where their balance sheet balances. <laughs> but that was his yeah. statement. So like, how do they even know like what's happening inside of their company, the companies that they're lending to, other than that they hope, hopefully they have enough assets to when, when, when shit goes south? Absolutely. No, this is, this is a case when Definitely, the, they're they're changing their risk profile, and they're changing their risk profile because of the, really what's going on in the external markets and the lack of clarity. And so, this is a you know certainly a case where you know the the banks and this is not unusual. I mean, again, when when things are good and they and they need to chase deals, again, they're getting overly aggressive and they're trying to win work because they need that in order to grow the company uh, to grow the bank. But you know, when when things start to head south, they almost collectively start to to rein their belt back in and start to reduce exposure. And that's what leads us to, to these sorts of environments generally. So then let's, cause they're thinking about that. I think this is a good bridge into risk and how are we pricing in risk to valuations? Because I think the biggest challenge that lots of people are talking about right now is what's going on in the M&A marketplace. How are value, how is this whole new world getting valued? I think, what was the mug that was going around in a picture, uh, which is EBITDA, which is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and COVID. Yeah. <laughs> so like, is this an ad back? What is the, how are people pricing in the new risk? Is it by industry? Is it by size? Is it depending on who is pricing it? Like, how is this whole situation being taken into account? Well, we're learning as we go along here, quite honestly. M&A activity is down about, depending on who you ask, about 80 to 95% uh, in April and May. So as all this has been going on, you know, we're seeing a lot of deals pulled from the market. We're seeing deals that were in process being coming canceled. Uh, we, have, we have two deals right now that are continuing to move forward. And you know, one of them actually is performing well, and the pricing hasn't changed, which has been a bit surprising, but it's set to close in the next month. We have another deal that's that we're looking at that, that has two companies that are merging effectively, but both companies have similar risk profiles as it relates to dealing with the pandemic. And so because they're doing a share exchange, uh, they've stuck with the pricing that was there uh, previously as well. So, you know, if you're performing well in this market, I think you can, if you were already in process, there's a good chance that you can see that deal through. Uh, but a lot of deals, particularly if there's any hiccups at all, are, are having difficulty in getting closed. Well, That's, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, too, that there's some other elements there related to rep and warranty insurance. 
you know, so rep and warranty insurance is tough, being a little bit tougher to come by right now. And that's become a huge part of, of almost all these deals to help to reduce their escrows. And they're putting greater restrictions on that insurance, uh, not to mention uh, some of the pricing. So some of these deals that we've seen that have come off the market, most of them have been performance related, but the ones that have still been moving forward, the rep and warranty insurance is, is being diligenced much more deeply than it, it is normally. And it's with greater restrictions. Well, it, it's so crazy to me, Dave. Like, so, and I'm, and I'm super curious to hear your, your answer to this is like, when I think about like the clients that your team and our team has worked together on, and we're looking at a financial valuation. So you take the discounted cash flow and like the biggest determining factors of company specific risk. Like how risky is that cash flow? And then you say, okay, well, we take all the ad backs out and we normalize EBITDA and let's say it's a million dollars, you know, in normalized EBITDA. Well, great. Like in, in, in ideally in the discounted cash, flow, you got the, you've got the forecast, right? You're like, you're looking at three to five years out and like, we don't even know how consumers are going to spend for the next two years when the vaccine's going to come out, what hospitality is going to look like, what bars are like, we don't know how that's going to happen. And like, I think about the people that have the supply chains that supply to those, how do you even project out? Cause like, you know, like they say, okay, well the COVID is going to be an ad back. And I'm like, well, that that's if we just waved the magic wand and all this shit disappeared. But like, you know, when you don't have, you know, out of one group of friends, who's going to go out, who's not going to go out. Cause there's so much uncertainty. How do you price that in to a, to evaluation? Well, that's the tough part. And you're right. That comes down to some of the company-specific risk and some of the general market risk uh, that we're seeing right now. So yeah, I, I think you're going to see most people certainly make some adjustments as it relates to COVID. Uh, there'll, be, there'll be a good amount of addbacks, and, and rightfully so, particularly on the PPP and, and some other uh, just general impacts as far as the supply chain disruption and whatnot. When you're buying equity, you're buying the future. And so what we're needing to do is take a look at what the future prospects of the business are, as you mentioned with the DCF and, you know, and, and any other forward-looking metric. But there's a whole lot of uncertainty, and that's really what we're, you know, we're seeing right now, which makes it very difficult, which does, like in a discounted cash flow analysis, which does cause you to increase the company-specific risk. You know, if you're in a pure deal environment, whether it be in an ESOP or a, you know, a straight M&A deal, I think you're, if you're trying to get a deal done right now, you know, one, it's a buyer's market. So the buyers certainly are, are the ones that have the advantage currently. And you're seeing those buyers come out and say, okay, well, if you really need to get out, we'll, we'll show you where our pricing is because we're pricing in this risk. And even with that, they're likely to tell you that there's going to be a, an earnout component in order to get to reasonable pricing on, on multiples. And so you know, they want to share in that risk. And they, you know, they certainly don't want to inherit it day one when they're putting cash to work, you know, uh, immediately. So, you know, they're going to need to see and, and have some protection as they move into these deals. So it's either price reduction or, or earnouts or clawbacks, some, some form of protection. And it, which makes sense why there's certain strategic acquisitions that are potentially still happening, right? I mean, cause like the acquirer knows their industry and they've already, they've already factored in their own industry risk, right? Like they've got probably experience and they understand like how things might happen. And so they're, they, they have an idea how they're going to generate the cash flow from the acquisition, right? I mean, they probably still have the, the cards <laughs> compared to, compared to the seller, but like, you know, how do you, I'm just trying to think of like, you know, 
what are the other things that are that are seeing the ripple effect other than the consumer spend and how things are going to you know reopen you know you and i on a previous phone call we talked about how this has exposed supply chain issues and then you know maybe talk about how you know when you're pricing a company why the stock market you mentioned the stock market and why that matters why supply chain and what's happening because i think there's the general understanding of okay i understand the shutdowns and how the, the pandemic has happened there but like the other things that might be on the this the you know a layer too deeper that people might not think about no i think you know certainly like you said there's a lot of covid related things that are there that are in your face we st- we still don't know exactly how that's going to play out but then on top of it you have partners that you're working with and your supply chain you know whether that be domestic partners that may not have the financial wherewithal to withstand you know what's what's happening to their business in the current environment or international uh, trade partners in your supply chain that you know given the you know trade dispute and war with you know with China i mean there's a lot of people rethinking uh, their supply chain and the risk that that supply chain brings. So a lot of this is coming closer. I mean, we're, we're seeing a lot of companies who are in that supply chain, you know, carrying a lot of inventory because the orders were put out there by their end, by the their their end customer, and they're just not taking it. And so you know the the supply chain continued to move, and they stopped uh, they stopped accepting orders or stopped accepting product. And you know now the the companies are trying to figure out you know, how to deal with that and deal with the working capital uh, aspects of that. So there's a lot of different elements that you need to look at as you're valuing firms. And we've seen some firms come, again, come through this pretty cleanly, but, but others that have had outbreaks of COVID that needed to shut down for, for a period of time, others that are starting to experience you know, more financial difficulty and uh, liquidity issues that, that have disrupted things. And it's, you know, it's tough because you can't see where the end demand is coming on one end. And then even as the demand's there, there's often some hiccups and, and difficulty in securing uh, the products that you need in order to, uh, to work. So it's a, it's a very difficult environment. And so the diligence aspect of this is something that is tough to come by. And that, you know, so it's, it's tough to go through because you're looking a little bit more deeply into Everything. all aspects of your business more <laughs> than you were you know, in, in an environment like that. And one of the biggest issues in any deal-related activity right now is due diligence, because if you can't if you can't get on site to you know meet with the people, see the operations, do all the normal monitoring activities and investigative activities that you do in a due diligence process, you know, the deals aren't going to move forward. And that's really been a for any deal that was just getting started. That's really the reason that a lot of these have hit the brakes outside of just the lack of clarity on, on the demand side of the equation. So like, yeah, there's a couple of different ways I want to go with this. Like the, I'm going back to like the supply chain and when you, I mean, cause we've got clients that are, that are, you know, manufacturers and they're not exposed to the, the customer, like you said, and all of a sudden they had a surge in orders and then poof, dropped off in April, right. Or May. And so like, there's like different ways that it's, you know, the supply chain's getting impacted. Are you like, what are your thoughts, Dave, when you look at like, I just go back just to the pure consumer. And like, I mean, I, I haven't touched my wallet for like months. It just sits on my counter. I mean, given the fact that I do have an app that, that is tied to Amazon and everything else that still gets, you know, stuff delivered to my door, but like just the, the, the amount of savings that I've had, or like just the average consumer from not going out is like, you know, so I'm watching this in and in from my own, maybe 
perspective, I, I look and okay, okay, the PPP covered some pain for eight weeks and there's a whole bunch of, you know, administrative pain that comes with that. But is that going to, is that shedding us from some potential disaster, some cracks that might happen when like the real lack of consumer spending is going to catch up to us in 60 to 90 days when we realize that it hasn't picked up like, like it, like it should have. Yeah, I think there's certainly something. I mean, we're we're keeping an eye on that, and and obviously a lot of our uh, clients are. But you know, there's there's a there's a real issue here. I mean, we were looking at looking at historically high unemployment, and the unemployment numbers don't actually reflect you know what what they would be had we not had the PPP. Because a lot of our clients, including ourselves, we you know we have a PPP loan. You know, in order to keep you know, given that the government shut things down you know, this, this money was there to allow you to retain all of your employees. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those, a lot of those people would have been laid off or furloughed otherwise. So the question is when that runs out and if the demand doesn't pick up, you know, are we going to see people in the opposite position? I mean, you're mentioning now, okay, well, you know, saving money because I'm not going out and haven't touched the wallet. I think there's a lot of people that are doing that. But then the question is, okay, once we get through, if people are continuing to save money and don't get that money spent, there's going to be a lot of people that continue to be on unemployment, which then, you know, leads to reductions in in demand and reductions in value then with those companies and and whatnot. And the external stock market has, you know, been interesting because <laughs> the way that it's acting, I mean, Wall Street is without question disconnected from Main Street in, in what we're seeing pretty broadly. And, you know, when the S&P has, you know, 20% of its valuation tied to the five largest tech companies, you know, those companies are thriving. And there's a reason why those are, are driving up. But the S&P really is disconnected in large part from, you know, the rest of, of general valuations. I mean, I think there's likely a compression in, in multiples that's going to happen because there's going to be less growth. But there's also the case where the actual multiplier or the earnings piece is going to be dropping as well. So, the, you know, I think there's without question going to be some impairment uh, on that end from a valuation standpoint. And, you know, we're hoping that obviously this this picks up and that people go back to spending as usual, but the psychology of where people are is making that, you know, hard to believe in, in the near term. There's just such a widespread of, you it's know, crazy. Dave. I mean, like, yeah. And like, I want to make sure that I touch on a couple of the points that you made because the uh, so I'll start with that when we talk about consumer spending. I like, so I like I've been, the Economist has been a great resource that I've been diving into over the last three months. As this is all you know gone over, they got the ninety percent economy edition. One is that um, God, they're talking about consumer spending, all these different things, and like I, I think about it, and you're like you're going back to your, your the PPP. Like the, the I have had clients that said. Yeah, I literally am going to fire fifty percent of my staff in seven weeks when my PPP is gone. <laughs> like, and but go and and it stems from their visibility into there's no way that my business in, or industry is going to be as normal. You know what I mean? Like, because like they're a supplier of material to a trade show or to an event or a concert or something like that. Where like even like those things aren't coming back for a while. Right. I mean, like, I can't imagine spending 40 grand on a booth. You and I both had been trade show sponsors, right? Are you spending, is Prairie spending 20, 30, $40,000 at a, a trade show anytime soon? And like all the, you know, gear and material and all this, all the suppliers that have, you know, material goods and services that they supply to those. I mean, that's just tough. And like, how that, 
you know, when you start to really see that in the economy, I don't know. I mean, it, it, if it's going to be in a couple months or, and how do you, does that make sense? I mean, I. No, absolutely. And I think it's, yeah, with, with that and even the conferences, I mean, how much, you know, the people that are going out and spending a hundred dollars a plate dinners, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, flying Hotels. on planes, staying in hotel rooms, doing all those things. I think it's definitely something that's going to take a while to get back to normal, not, not to mention colleges and the, the ecosystem that, that surrounds college campuses and the needs of, of those kids and, and how much money flows through the system based on that. There's a, there's a whole lot of things that certainly are going to be impacted and it's not going to, you know, the switch isn't going to turn on overnight. And again, a lot of that comes back to the psychology aspect of it because it would be very difficult right now for me to say that if we had normally 20 people going out to a certain conference, that all those people would be comfortable doing so. It's, it's going to take a while uh, for some of them to get back to where that seems to be logical. Well, and, and even you is, as a business owner, right, Dave, you would have to, you, wouldn't, even before you made that decision, wouldn't you want to know as, a, as an investor in that situation, are, am I, is the thousand people going to be in the audience? If it's only going to be 180, I'm not spending 40 grand for that. You know what I mean? Like you, you just kind of think about, it's all about exposure to people, right? And, and the wallets. Absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a ripple effect for sure. And it goes through you know, a whole host of, of different areas that it's, it's tough to see that it's, it's getting back to where it was because definitely money was flowing pretty freely and the economy was going well and people were spending on growth. But right now, when the focus is on you know, protecting their entities and, you know, and protecting their people. It's a much different mindset with regards to how money is going to be spent and certainly on anything that's, you know, travel or conference related. I mean, most of the conferences that obviously we're seeing now, even, even out a few months are all being converted to virtual conferences. Mm -hmm. So the, you know, going back to the stock market and then the investors. And so the stock market being decoupled and disconnected from true reality. One thing that hasn't really impacted or well, so you got the Fed that's been, you know, stimulating the economy doing, you know, bailouts left and right. And you have one thing that, you know, the, the big stat is the, the private equity firms that have this $1.5 trillion, whatever the number eventually is in their coffers, right? So you had the big investors, pension funds, endowments, private equity that are pricing, you know, they're, they're, the funds are flowing to the stock market because they're racing for safety and storeholder wealth. And then you've got private equity firms that their investment thesis is to buy companies, privately held companies. How, like, what is their attitudes towards this? Because they still have the money, right? They still need to get the rate of return for the other investors that put the money in. Like, what, what's the chatter been going on um, amongst those crowds? You know, there's, you know, like you said, there's about 1.5 trillion and then about 500 billion in deals that were done last year. So they got three years worth of deals relative to last year's volume uh, that they have available. <laughs> the difficulty for them right now is, is, again, lack of clarity, lack of ability to conduct diligence, like I was talking about before. But also, you know, they need the credit markets uh, in order to really pursue deals, you know, in any meaningful manner. So right now, it's definitely you know, advantage strategic as far as acquisitions are concerned. Although most strategics need to access that as well, but they can they can oftentimes again get synergies, and many of them have you know, balance sheets that allow them to you know, to borrow capital across a, a broader swath of assets than private equity firms do. 
So I think you know private equity certainly needs to get some of this capital deployed. And what we're hearing is that you know they're looking out to the future and feeling really good about what deal flow is going to be there. But they're you know they'll, they'll pursue deals that are put on their plate right now, but it's likely not to be at the valuations uh, that we'd seen previously. They're gonna they're gonna want to have some again some greater confidence in the trajectory of of the company's performance uh, and you know, if they don't see that and if it's not abundantly clear in the company, it doesn't have the right story to tell, it's likely that they're going to see reduced pricing or uh, earnout type scenarios come into play. But there's, there's a lot that needs to be done in order for them to get, uh, you know, to get all that money to work. And, no and this environment is really making it difficult. It's really shut things down pretty heavily. Well, and they were struggling before trying to win deals at reasonable prices, right? I mean, you were doing, you were hearing four times, four times, fourteen times EBITDA, and like, <laughs> which they still need to get the return. So, like, it's the completely opposite end of the spectrum problem, right? We're now, it, it, is it now they got problems of trying to get deals done, getting the financing? But when you say that they feel good about the future, is it because they think that there's going to be pain that they're going to be able to get the returns that they need for the investors or what what's what's driving their good attitude or their their putt? I think they believe there's some pent up demand as far as people needing to exit businesses whether it be their own portfolio companies or you know more importantly that there's a whole host of of baby boomers that that have yet to you know to sell so there is there is certainly some good demographics to feeding that and fueling that industry but you know, I think in, in general, I think the fact that they were all like you mentioned, they were fighting to levels of, of multiple elevation that was diminishing their return. That you know, they're they're looking at, at scenarios now that will likely bring that down to where they can actually step into something and achieve a reasonable return if they're willing to create liquidity for someone today. But you know, time time will tell. But there's, I think they were there was an expectation prior to COVID that. There was going to be a very robust M and A market this year, and that private equity was going to play a huge role in that. You know, yes, they've had to pull back the last few months to really take care of their portfolio companies. You know, and, and that's taken some of their their mm-hmm. eye off of the growth side of it. But now they're not seeing a whole lot of things come across their desk. They, you know, the amount of you know, pitch activities, as I mentioned, was down significantly, and part of it is because it's hard to present a company, you know, to private equity or anyone else. If you have a lack of certainty in the company's ability to perform and we can recast all we want, but if the story's not sound and if the data isn't playing to the story, you're going to see very limited demand. So I think once this, once this settles, you know, people are going to get a chance to see who was able to deal with this well, who wasn't. And you're going to have some people similar to the last recession that, found themselves in a position that they weren't anticipating being in. And, and maybe the, the business owner is, is in a risk-off position and wants to, to sell the company, even if it means taking a haircut to what they would have received just a few months ago. So the, uh, which I want, I'm curious, you know, with your experience, Dave, you've been through multiple recessions. And uh, on one of our previous calls, you were talking about how the 0809 recession is different than now. And what are some common themes, or maybe not common themes? What are some things that you saw in 0809? How things shook out? What, how valuations, you know, 
how they uh, un- unraveled, but then not unraveled, but how they played out. But then also, what did the successful people do? Like, you know, because like right now, everybody thinks this is never going to go away, but the reality is, is, is it will, right? And there, there's people acting right now and lining strategies up, whether you're a private equity or you're a seller. And like, what are things that you saw work well and not well in 08? And how does that translate to now? And then how is it different? Well, I think for anyone who is getting ready to sell their business, I think part of it's just making their business look better, understanding what the market is going to be looking for and what makes them attractive. And if there are some improvements to be made, whether they be personnel or just operational modification, that they start to to make some of those. You know, there's, it's kind of just preparing for when the, the environment shifts to where it becomes attractive again. And having yourself look more attractive for that. It's the equivalent of losing, you know, 10 pounds prior to going out in the dating world. You know, it's, it's, so, yeah. you know, I think, you, you know, it's a matter of just finding the best way to, to present the company. We also saw, and I'm expecting that we're going to see here too, when, when the financing markets start to, to, to dry up and there's limited amounts of capital out there to access, at least on the ESOP side of the equation, we saw more people doing deals with, uh, you know, seller financing, and in some cases, even 100% seller financing, you know, going through getting the transaction completed, already having that in motion, expecting that, you know, 12 months, you know, from now, you know, 18 months from now, that when the, the, the debt markets open up again, that they're able to go to their bank and refinance out some of those seller financing. So, you know, for those that were ready mm-hmm. mentally, that really is a, a good option if they're looking in the ESAP route just to to hold the seller paper and to, to wait for the liquidity event for a little bit, but know that you're, you're working through already the process and you're running the business in a hundred percent ESOP scenario as, as a tax exempt entity and you improve mm-hmm. your cash flows. That's super interesting. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, makes sense. Cause I mean, it, it, yeah, it, it, that's a really interesting strategy. Also other strategies I'm curious is like when you, when you think about, the real world example that just got hammered through everybody's perspective of what truly does sustainable, predictable, and transferable cash flow look like, right? Because that's that's true value in in cash flow. So I think we've all now got a better understanding of what that means, and that's just not as easy as most people think it is because the twelve year bull market that we had. You know, what are things that you're seeing, or are there are there things that you would recommend to like? current business owners and say, okay, look at your supply chain. How, what are the stories? What are the things that they should be doing now to lose those 10 pounds? I mean, is there things that you see? And then that kind of goes back to the 0809 comment. Is there things that you would recommend kind of put, you know, the, the building blocks that people should be, uh, should be focusing on? Well, certainly, you know, supply chain with some of it. And we saw a lot of people, you know, shrink the number of, of parties in their supply chain and look for higher quality uh, coming out of that recession. We also saw a lot of automation come into play, you know, and so certainly putting in some automation, looking at maybe how, how fat their, their workforce was. If, if there's positions that maybe someone's retiring, you know, does that position really needed or are we able to, you know, structurally just change our organization a bit so that others, you know, just uh, absorb that? So I think we definitely came out of that recession with companies that were leaner and more effective at producing sustainable cash flow. So there was a huge improvement at that point in time. I'd say that I'm, I'm expecting that we're going to see a little bit more of the same here. Uh, and there may be some cases now as well where if people 
see that their workforce can work remotely and there's a way to reduce some of their exposure from a cost standpoint uh, to some of their physical space, you know, that may likely happen. I mean, there's certainly some negatives to doing that. Uh, and, you know, but, you know, in, in a lot of instances, I think people have seen that, hey, work from home has worked well for them. It's worked well for their employees. And either there's a, a full work from home situation or at least some modifications that can allow them to reduce some of their real estate costs. Yeah, I think when you you said it, like, you know, when you think about the recalibration and doing the good hard work, right? I mean, do you think, I mean, I, I just look at this, David, I'm like the, the, the companies that do the hard work, right? Like have clean financials, have a good strategic plan, like they're going to get rewarded for that hard work, right? Versus like, like I think about the incremental value of doing that like a year ago. I mean, I think about just even selling what we sell. And like you had mentioned that you guys uh, thrived after 0809 because people wanted help. I mean, like the people that do the hard work are going to get rewarded for it because there's a lot of people that have been caught off guard and, and kind of sleepy. Oh, absolutely. And it's, and it, it takes, you know, a lot of, a lot of effort, you know, to, to change things. And so there's some people that just, you know, they're not willing to invest the capital to put the business in a position to, you know, to, to grow and to present itself well. You know, some people take a view that, okay, well, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna keep producing the profit that I am, and I'm not gonna reinvest much into the business, and I'm not gonna do all the hard work to, to do the planning and to make the internal modifications. And most of those people just see their businesses continue to dwindle rather than maintain you know it's the ones that actually go out and and do the planning you know particularly if they're looking at an exit you know then do the planning you know make the improvements show the incremental change that can happen based off these and show that it's repeatable you know and you're, you really find yourself in a position where you can be rewarded uh, in the long run cost money today but certainly makes you money from an investment perspective later and allows you to maintain your competitive advantage I want to pull that thread for a second, Dave, because the, you know, we, Pat and I talk a lot about shifting your mindset away from annual income to long-term value creation, which you just described. Right. And I think, I don't know what your, your, your experiences with all the deals that you've looked at is do you, I find it that a lot of entrepreneurs had that struggle because they don't know how they're gonna harvest that value, right? They, they don't know necessarily know how to actually look at that rate of return because it's too much like of a fictitious number, right? Like I can make 500 grand this year through distribution salary versus like, you know, reinvesting and then making that worth 2 million in two years. You know, what is your, what, what comments would you have for the listeners who are struggling with that? And then like how to, how to tie what they're doing in right now towards a, a longer goal like that? You know, it's, it's a tough thing. I mean, it's, you know, you're looking at someone oftentimes if they're getting ready to exit or if they're even five years from exiting, you know, they're, they're thinking if I deploy this capital that I just, you know, throw it down the drain and, and find myself in a position where I've just you know, reduced my net worth. You're right. I mean, if, if, if people, you know, don't do that, what they need to realize is that there's a competitive environment out there and that, that people are constantly changing and modifying and there's, there's new business risks uh, that continue to pop up that, you know, again, can cause some erosion in their value. It's, it's important for the company to, to look and show, you know, that it is, you know, thoughtful, that it has strong management, that it's willing to make investment. And ideally, obviously, you see the results of that investment to really, you know, get 
you know, top multiple that you can for the business and to get a, a wide audience that's, you know, there to, to create an auction environment when you're looking to sell. So, you know, making an investment and making, continuing to make investments is key. And we have that issue when, you know, that's one of the first things we tell people when we start to represent them, whether it be, you know, for an ESOP or, or M&A or, or any type of buyout is that, you know, you may feel like you're getting close to the finish line, but if you take your eye off the ball, you can see, and we've seen it time and time again, people all of a sudden, you know, think, okay, well, I'm, I'm in the mode of selling and they see their performance start to dip when they're in the, the middle of a, a time when they're going to be becoming priced uh, for their ultimate exit and they see a lot of value erosion. So, you know, it's, it's key to continue to keep the throttle down, you know, for everyone. Because again, the, the external, you know, competitive landscape isn't, isn't going to take their foot off the gas. And so, it, you know, it's important to, to keep moving forward. So that, that kind of gives a, it's a good bridge into like the, the strategy that we, I, we preach a lot. And I'm curious on your feedback on this day. Cause like when I think about like true freedom and options for an entrepreneur, it's like you build a healthy business that kicks off cash, but would that, that means you're constantly reinvesting in the right strategies that produce value, the increase your EBITDA or your multiple or paying down debt somehow it's marching that direction. And when I think about like what you guys do when you have ESOPs, management, the structures, as well as private equity or strategic, I mean, that's those are the, 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 the four main major options for exits. You know, because an ESOP is a, is a financial valuation, you can kind of predict and control what that will eventually be, depending of whether there's a pandemic or not. <laughs> but, you know, given like the, the most amount of uh, knowledge and that you can have, you can kind of plan that out. So what I've said to others is like, hey, if you can continue to reinvest in keeping that healthy business, you can eventually have the options of a strategic or private equity sale that is the right buyer. And if that doesn't work out, you can always fall back and pretty much guarantee that you can do an ESOP if you've built a healthy business, but you can't shortchange all the investments to hopefully hand off your company to the perfect strategic buyer without any plan. I mean, it's kind of like playing all options at once. I don't, I mean, any thoughts on like that kind of strategy? No, I, I, I think it's a perfect strategy. I think everyone, you know, for the entrepreneur who goes and builds a business, you want as many alternatives as you can. I mean, cause there's, there's aspects of a deal that are purely financially related and there's other aspects of a deal that relate to more emotional issues and you know, where you, where you want the business to be and, and how you want it to move forward. If you're, if you're someone who you know, again, isn't investing in the business, you create something that doesn't have sustainable cash flows, you really limit, you know, your options and your pricing, you know, and this goes for a lot of people. And one of the biggest mistakes we often see is that there's someone who's an entrepreneur who plays things way too close to the vest, and they don't bring up management that is able to run the business autonomously. You know, certainly they, they may have an important role in that organization, but they need to groom that next level of management in order to create a sustainable situation. You know, a lot of people have the assumption that if they go and sell to a, a strategic or financial buyer, they're going to bring in a SWAT team of experts to run the business. And that's just, you know, most often not the case. You know, they don't, they don't want to do that. They want to, they're buying a management cash team. Yeah, cash flow. <laughs> so if, the, if, if, the, if the entrepreneur wants to leave, uh, that'll cause a, a huge reduction in price and a lot of difficulty in, in selling that business to any party. And I think about right now, like the the stuff that's probably going through people's heads and the conversations I have is like, you know, depending on where the entrepreneur is in and the life cycle of their life and the business and all that is like, you know what, this sucks. I'm not, I'm not doing this again. 
especially if they're in their 60s and they'll live through two or three recessions. Like you got to at some point get exhausted. <laughs> just like, you know, clipping coupons and, you know, getting the distributions forever is just maybe not as viable as they thought at the end of 2019. And I, and, I think about the, the, you know, hopefully the bad decisions that don't get made is like, I just want to get rid of this, right? And how much value is lost when they have that, you know, depleted passion and energy compared to, hey, I want to, for 36 or 48 months, build a very specific financial strategic plan that does these things. And like, you can pre-engineer an ESOP, right? I mean, if you do it right, you can do that and know that you've got control over that. And then if you you know, ultimately want to sell to a third party, you can do that as well, but you're going to get the value that you, you know, that you have spent so long building. I just, any thoughts as you have conversations and have gone through many recessions of, you know, help giving some encouragement to the entrepreneurs that just got the crap kicked out of them? No, I mean, I I think it's exactly that. I mean, you got to keep your eye on the ball and, and it's, and it is, it's hard. I mean, if you were getting ready to to retire, it's difficult because this is definitely, you know, likely elongated it, or it's it's going to cost you, you know, some some good money that uh, you know you've you've spent again decades probably building. So, again, having that plan and and having an idea of of again improving the business, improving operations, you know, getting your management team in line and 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 productive and and you know being a management team that actually can succeed you and 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 move forward with the business in your absence, you know, is key. And this is key if you sell the business, but even if say you enter into a, that situation and right, we have the situation play out that we're in right now. And all of a sudden there's a recession and you are burnt out. You've got the people in place to continue running the business with just you maybe acting in a board capacity or something. I mean, it, it gives you the options to either hold or sell and, you know, it's, it's a real key point. And again, one where we see, you know, people stub their toe a pretty decent amount and that they just, they don't put themselves in a position to perpetuate the business with their own personnel. Mm-hmm. Well, and do you see right now is a huge opportunity, Dave, to like go acquire the talent that wasn't available like only two months ago? You know, I think you have the ability probably to acquire some of the talent. I also think it's these times that allow you to recognize the talent because sometimes if business is just going on as normal, you become a little bit blind to maybe how good certain people are. And, you know, we always see that in recessions, you'll see some people step up in, in ways that you never imagined that they were capable of. And maybe it's just because it wasn't their job, but now all mm-hmm. of a sudden they, they're realizing, Hey, we we're, we're in a different position and this needs to happen and we need to see success or, you know, my own job or career is at risk. And you'll see those people pop up and become a little bit more apparent that they're someone who can move into a role that maybe you you discounted their capability before. So, you know, but there is going to be some external talent as well. There's definitely going to be people that and good managers that have been displaced. So, you know, whether it's internal or external, mm-hmm. that's a really uh, good point. some opportunities to, to recognize and to, to elevate. So like, as we're wrapping up here and we're kind of, I want to loop it back to valuations and like, you know, I'm just thinking of the, you know, in the, those stories that we just told about people in different perspective or different uh, timelines and energy levels and they go, okay, now here we are. Like now is the time to understand, like, I mean, like realistically, what are we looking at for like when a normal 
<laughs> semi-normal like valuation will be obtainable. And then, you know, like how, how is it, how does that, you know, where are we in that timeline? But then also, can you maybe, you know, lend some insight on, even though the valuations might be somewhat, you know, to a normal state at the end of the year or whatever you say this, then how does that impact on the deal structures? Cause just cause the valuations there doesn't mean the deal structures are as pretty as they were a year ago. No, agreed. I, I think in the here and now, I think you're going to get hit with reduced valuations and, you know, more restrictive deal structures based on where we're moving and what we're, what we're seeing in general. And, and again, this is, this is crystal ball stuff because there's just such limited vis- visibility. But I think it'd be surprising if by late third quarter or fourth quarter, we don't start seeing, you know, a pretty significant pickup in activity for me. And, but a lot of that's going to be predicated on, you know, the banking environment and the, the, you know, business development corporations that lend into those, those deals. So, I mean, the BDCs right now are, you know, really restrictive. And that's a lot of what has been funding private equity deals. So, you know, those guys and the banks, they need to get themselves comfortable. They need to get the PPP behind them. They need to get themselves in growth mode again, where they're lending into these situations. And ideally, you know, the dust will have settled on at least the shutdown aspect of the, of how the pandemic has played out. And we'll get to run rates of, you know, three Whatever four, there can five be, months yeah. that, that, that prove out you know, the investment thesis uh, to tie into what projections are going to be provided. So we're, we're <laughs> yeah. hoping, you know, that, that it's going to be the, at the end of this year. Now, it likely for the near term is going to have some additional restrictions on structure. But, you know, again, we'll see. The, the hardest part for us right now is that, you know, as you're asking early on, you know, what's going on in the market? How are deals being structured how are deals being priced the reality is is they aren't because they're not happening right? they're not happening <laughs> so you know there's a lot of speculation about what's going to move forward and yeah if there's a strategic that sees a company and it, the company has some strategic importance for them and there's some synergy there and and it's a buy versus build or it's just something that they've coveted for a while they're likely going to find a way to make that happen but if it's a company that's being taken to market you know, if it's performing really well, they'll, they'll have some people that'll look at it because it, those companies are hard to to come by right now. And so, again, you have private equity with dollars to spend. You will see some probably some pretty nice activity and interest mm-hmm. in those companies. But there's a whole host of companies that had a bit of a ripple in their financial performance, and I think it's going to take uh, you know a good six months for that to to shake out to where we get back to some sense of normal. Well, and I think Dave, what an amazing time, honestly, if you, if you take the silver lining of it is like for an entrepreneur that's listening, going, okay, well, my son, you know, whatever they're, whatever they're going through, they're like, you know, like an amazing time to buckle down, build your financial foundation and a, and a strategic plan. And, you know, actually put some attention behind it and say, okay, here's what I want. Cause either a, you're going to be able to acquire your company or competitors that are not doing that stuff. Cause there's a lot of people that probably aren't. And why, I mean, if you're planning on selling in the next 12 to 18 months, why not do this? And you probably get a higher multiple because there's not going to be as many people doing the same thing as you. And there's no reason to do it right now. And, or you could like, if, even if you had no intention of selling, you're still going to have an opportunity to take advantage of the, 
the opportunities of the competitors or the people in your, you know, your landscape that didn't do this stuff. I mean, I don't know. I just, even though it's, you know, a lull, I think that there's an opportunity to be awake when people aren't. Absolutely. Well, I think people have spent the last two months of, I mean, unless, unless they weren't necessarily impacted, which isn't a whole lot, you know, they've been in, in triage mode. And as you come out of that, you're right. I mean, it all comes out to, down to planning. I mean, this will change and the, and the, circum- and the situation will change. The, the economic environment will change. And it's all about changing your positioning. You know, when the, in the 2007 through nine recession, you know, you know, we, we basically made sure that we kept all of our employees. We wanted to make sure that we had everything intact. Most of our competitors weren't. And we planned and prepared for you know, what was going to happen when we came out of that situation. And we had a, a huge spike in our own growth. Uh, during that period, and it all came down to planning and and a commitment to you know growing for the future, knowing that there was going to be demand. We just wanted to be positioned uh, to be one of the parties that was able to serve uh, you know as, as advisor for that demand. And yeah, so it's, it, it is critical. I mean, planning planning is 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 a huge key, and it's it's tough to do when when there's difficult times. But as you mentioned, that's when there's the real opportunity. Well, it, it's so funny. I was talking to one of my friends who owns a, a big business here in town. And like, the reality is, I mean, people will go back to doing the normal things, even with, even if it takes 24 months, like that would be excruciating. But like, the reality is there will, I mean, people like to eat, drink, hang out with friends, period. <laughs> right. And they like entertainment. So it will go back to that at some point. It just matters how long and how healthy the balance sheets are of the companies that can wait that long. And or, you know, do the right things between now and then because it's just a marathon at that point and who, who, who can last? <laughs> no, absolutely. We'll, we'll, we'll get there. I mean, we're, we're hoping, right? And like I said, right now there's limited visibility, but it is starting to clear up a little bit. I mean, the, the, the green shoots term has, has started to, to pop up with some of the PE guys and the people in our industry. So it's, it's good to hear that, that they're starting to see at least some change in the direction uh, that we're moving. And, you know, that's what, what we need. And we're starting to see, you know, again, companies get a little bit better handle on what this is all going to mean to them going forward. And, you know, that's, that's critical. I mean, having some confidence and some visibility, you know, is key to, you know, to getting us all to move forward and to, for, for entrepreneurs to have a, a market that they'd ever want to sell into. So I, you know, I can, I want to hear what your main takeaways are. And then before we I do that, I'll, I'll put a link to uh, the PDF that you guys have. You guys have a great one on the uh, COVID-19 pandemic and deal structure or the M&A uh, world. And so you got a bunch of resources that we'll, we'll link to Prairie and everything like that in the show notes. You know, if you're, what, what take any, any major things that you'd leave the, the listeners with in as far as it relates to like how to handle the rest of the rest of the 2020? You know, if I, if I had a perfect answer, I'd, I wouldn't be sitting here. Quite <laughs> you and honestly. I'd be rich sitting on an island. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's, it's a matter of that. It's a matter of, you know, you know, taking care of, you know, of the, you know, the liquidity situation of the company. If there's one area that we're seeing issues, it's about liquidity. So, you know, keeping an eye on, on that and understanding the dynamic, you know, building out, you know, multi-week forecasts of cash flow. You know, having as good a handle on that as possible, and and planning for the future. You know, it, it all comes down to to that. It's you know, the bottom line is making sure that you're financially healthy enough to move forward, but then you know, not being afraid to 
to look at the future and look at how to address the future and take advantage of opportunities. One last question for you. And then I want to know how the listeners can get, get in touch with you is what does the word intentional mean for you? You know, intentional is a well thought out and purposeful plan effectively, you know, to, to move forward. What's the best way to get in touch with uh, you and the Prairie, the team at Prairie? Uh, you certainly can access our website at www.prairiecap.com or certainly email me at d-d-i-e-h-l at prairiecap.com. I'd be happy to answer any questions. Dave, I appreciate you coming back on the show. I had a blast. All right. Thank you very much, Ryan.